celebrate the launch of David Rothkopf's new book, American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation by becoming a member today. This month, new members will receive a free signed copy of the book, along with the usual member benefits, including an ad-free listening experience, members-only bonus content, an invitation to join the DSR Network Slack community, and more. To take advantage of this offer, visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and select the option titled American Resistance. Upon successful checkout, you will receive a confirmation email with instructions on how to redeem the book. The book retails for $29, but is included with this membership option. You'll just pay for shipping. Please allow two to four weeks for shipping. Thank you very much. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, everybody. Uh, This is Simon Rosenberg. I'm filling in for David Rothkopf today. As hard as something like that may be, I'm going to give it my best. We have a a great show today with Congressman Eric Swalwell from California, who to me is one of the true bright lights of this rising generation that we're going to be talking about so much more now that we've begun to see the generational wheel in the Democratic Party turn, as we've seen over the last few weeks. Congressman, welcome. Thank you for being okay, with thanks, us Simon. today. We hope David gets better. I know. I, I had what he has, and it, and it was rough. And today's my first day among the living. And so I, I wish him well. I had a few tough days that hit our whole house. It was not COVID, but it was something that felt an awful lot like it. And so, yes, fingers crossed for David. And so, Congressman, uh, this is an historic week. Nancy Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi, has, along with Congressman Clyburn and Congressman Hoyer, orchestrated what was really truly a graceful and remarkable transfer of power among the House Democrats. And we've now seen a new leadership team led by Congressman Jeffries and Congresswoman Clark taking over in the last few days. It's a big moment for you. I mean, you've been in the Congress for a few years now. Give us some thoughts. I mean, how's it going? What, what are your hopes, your aspirations? Do you miss Nancy already? I mean, how, how do things feel from inside it all? You know, Simon, it's exciting to see uh, two classmates of mine, the class of 2012, and Hakeem Jeffries and Catherine Clark, uh, you know, take shape as, as new leaders uh, for the new Congress and the new direction. But it's a testament to Nancy Pelosi that there was not a contested battle for who the next generation of leaders would be. Actually, very unwritten uh, has been that uh, for many years, as long as I've been in the House, the Speaker has really developed and mentored a number of uh, our colleagues uh, to be ready to lead. And her approach has always been, if you show the initiative, uh, you know, she'll show you the way and she'll give you the forum to be a leader. And, you know, Hakeem certainly has demonstrated that, you know, as the caucus chair, as a impeachment manager, as a member of the Judiciary Committee, as a leader in the Black Caucus. And Catherine also in her own right is a 
you know, former prosecutor, assistant speaker, uh, you know, a former vice chair. So she's, uh, they're very capable, energetic, and there's just a change in the air in the caucus. And we recognize that, you know, we are riding this momentum coming out of the midterms where, yes, the gavels will change hands in the House, but it's a very narrow margin. We were not blown out in the way that we were told by the forecasters and the pundits, everyone but you, <laughs> it seems, Simon. And and now, you know, we have a democracy is on life support. You know, it was given uh, a reprieve, so to speak, this midterm election. Uh, but we know with the Republicans in the majority uh, that they're going to try and scandalize Joe Biden. They're going to focus entirely on, you know, going after and, and destroying the Biden family. And they're going to form the largest law firm in Washington, D.C. Uh, with just one client, Donald Trump. And they're going to litigate all of his grievances through the Judiciary Committee where I sit. And that's where, you know, I, I think we are going to have to, you know, really stand in the breach. I'm fascinated by the way you've described all this, because it seems like the, you know, this is the third consecutive disappointing election for the Republicans under MAGA. Um, there, this election, it really feels like this was a stay the course election, a rejection of extremism. Very few incumbents lost anywhere in the country. And it's almost as if the most powerful signal the country could have given the Republican Party was that they wanted them to move away and abandon MAGA. And what you're saying is you feel they're going to double and triple down on it and that they're so enthralled by this extremism that they can't help themselves anymore. Do you think there's going to be really any break whatsoever? Is there any consciousness on their end that they're already among the most popular people to ever take over the Congress in the history of the country? And that they're just going to damn the torpedoes and go ahead without making any kind of olive branch to try to govern it effectively or win over voters that may be, you know, struggling to stay with the Republicans now. That's a great point, Simon, because, you know, the the facade uh, that they put up during the election was that they were running to address gas and groceries and they wanted to, you know, take on, you know, crime in our cities. And they've shown in, in just the last couple of weeks uh, after the midterm election that they're going to focus on Hunter Biden. And, and, and the press conferences they've held has made that absolutely clear. And so I think we have to, you know, responsibly, well, first, we have to defend and, and punch back twice as hard uh, in our own defense and the defense of the president. But also, we're going to have to do the work on gas and groceries and keeping the government open and extend, you know, paying our bills through the debt ceiling and funding the effort in Ukraine. And, and yes, watch them as uh, they, you know, quadruple down, uh, so to speak, uh, on Trumpism. And I would think that, you know, in a democracy, you could be a cult leader. But if you were to lose three elections in a row, the House in 18, the White House and the Senate in 20, and not pick up the Senate when you're supposed to and, and not have the red wave in the House when you're supposed to, that that would be enough to defeat Trumpism. But they're going to prove, I, I think, that they can't quit Trumpism. And, you know, what we're going to have to do is to continue to put forward, I think, this frame of we can have competency or we can have chaos. You know, when it comes to choosing our leaders, we can have voting or we can have violence uh, and, and show where they stand uh, on those frames uh, and where we will lead. It's a really important point is that, you know, not only did we are we likely to now pick up a seat in the Senate and have the House essentially be a jump ball. I mean, you know how these races work. I mean, a handful of votes in a few states and in a few districts, we would have been in the majority. So essentially, it was an even election in the House. 
you know, we actually picked up five state legislative chambers. I mean, this was, by any historic measure, a remarkable election for us. And the way I like to talk about it, Congressman, is that there were really two elections. There was a, a bluer election inside the battleground and a bunch of blue states and a redder election outside the battleground. And this gets to the, the next point that I would like to talk to you about. As you say, a new day is emerging. It seems to me that one of the greatest challenges we have is to, in this election, where we had our heavily funded campaigns, you know, our, all the money that our grassroots people were able to fund into our campaigns, we were able to control the information environment. But as you know every day, they are louder than we are. They're, and Fox News and the infrastructure they have, they're able to you know, set the, disc, the daily discourse and the talking points for the country, even things as ridiculous as fentanyl and Halloween candy, right, that the, they made into a story for a month or so. How are or, you or, think- uh, Pat yeah. boxing. Cat litter boxes. I mean, we're we're all aware now that the noisiness of their side is distorting, and and they have far more control over the daily discourse than they should. How do you think Hakeem's team and the newer, younger people who have, are closer to this digital age? You're a digital entrepreneur yourself in the way that you communicate. How do you think we're going to see a strat, a change in communication strategy uh, for the House if we're not legislating as much? Does that give you more? time to re- to use this platform you have to to fight out in the national discourse. I mean, how are you thinking about this? How do you think the House is going to feel different? Do you think Hakeem is committed to really do more to counter the national, uh, the, no- the right-wing noise machine in the day-to-day, given what you're talking about, given that there won't be as much traditional legislation, right, passing? So just interested in your thoughts about that. Yeah. Well, I think that before Kevin McCarthy even becomes speaker, you know, we need to cast this, you know, for what it is, which is a, a corrupt bargain uh, in that, you know, he has struck a, a drug deal with the most extreme uh, members uh, in his caucus, people who embrace, you know, Nick Fuentes and, you know, the pro-Nazi, uh, pro-Hitler approach. And Simon, as we, as we sit here and talk, I'm getting updates on my phone about what Kanye West and Alex Jones are talking about. Uh, in a conversation right now where they're praising Hitler. And remember, Jim Jordan tweeted out Kanye, Elon, Trump. Kanye period, Elon period, Trump period. These are the people that they hold up. And so if they are going to be, you know, the quote unquote attackers going after the Biden administration, uh, we need to make sure that Americans know just exactly, you know, who Jim Jordan is, who Jim Jordan respects, uh, and really put his credibility out there or lack of credibility out there. So I'm going to be a part of that effort on the Judiciary Committee. Uh, There's a lot of talent on that committee. I I think it's uh, shown itself uh, through uh, multiple impeachments that it is up for this. But first and foremost, if McCarthy becomes Speaker, we need to make sure people know a corrupt bargain was struck uh, to do that. And then once, uh, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and uh, Comer and and Jordan and, and others go on the attack, that before they're able to even host their first hearing, that the American people have, that they're fully aware of, you know, who these individuals are uh, before any weight of credibility uh, is given to them. And so that's what I'm going to do. And I know there's a lot of efforts out there to make sure that's the case, but we're not going to, we cannot get, you know, benghazi here and see a rerun, you know, of the same play that, you know, weakened Secretary Clinton in 2016. And just a reminder to our audience that David Rothkoff, our normal host, is uh, home ill today. 
And Tara McGowan, who's one of our co-hosts, my dear friend, unfortunately had technical issues. And so just me and the congressman spending time with you today. But thank you, Congressman, given how busy this week is. You know, one of the reflections I have about this election is that, you know, I've been doing this full time now for 30 years. I joined the Clinton campaign in early, late 1991, early 92, and I've been working full time. And I, I really think that when you look around at the party now, not only did we show incredible tactical strength in this election by withstanding the red wave and beating, actually making gains in the battleground, we didn't just withstand the red wave, we actually made gains in Pennsylvania and Arizona and in Georgia and Michigan among the most important, and Ohio, right? I mean, among the most important states in the country. So, and we flipped these state legislative chambers. But when I look around at the party, in addition to tactically being successful, and look at the leaders that are coming, you know, that at some point over the next five years or so, Speaker Pelosi is going to cede to Nancy and Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders and others will be giving way to this next Democratic Party. And when I look at Gavin Newsom and Jared Polis and Gretchen Whitmer and many of your colleagues who've now survived two incredibly difficult elections in a row and Cortez Masto and Alex Padilla, you know, I really believe that what I'm looking at is the strongest and best Democratic Party since I've been in this business over the last 30 years. And it's why what I, I think that the elegant transfer from Nancy to Hakeem and the team was just so symbolically important for us is that this is the beginning of a multi-year long process of, of a new generation rising and taking the reins of the Democratic Party that will be happening. It's arguably the most important thing that's going to happen to us over the next five years or so. You're one, in my mind, you're one of those people that give me so much confidence. And I just wonder, how does it feel right now, right? I mean, in terms of you look around, you've been doing this, you've been fighting this out for a decade. We've had ups and downs. You were in it before even then, right? But I mean, does it feel strong? I mean, the line I had in my memo yesterday that I released was, the Democratic Party is strong. We didn't feel that way six months ago. I think we, I feel that way now. I mean, what are your, what are your thoughts about that, Congress? It's exciting to see now as this new generation takes shape that uh, there's going to be an audience for so many of these generational issues where, frankly, there, there is overwhelming cohesion among Americans on what we need to do, ending gun violence and making sure that you know our kids don't have to live in fear. Overwhelmingly, the American people support that. And you have you know now you know in the leadership, you know, three people in Hakeem and Catherine and Pete, uh, who have relatively younger children who have come up in this culture of gun violence. And, and so they're going, I think it's uniquely personal to them. And, and so many of us in the Congress now, as it, as it has become younger and younger, uh, I have a five-year-old, a four-year-old, and a one-year-old, and feel a, a real responsibility to make sure that they don't go into an environment at their schools where they're still, when they're graduating you know, from high school, doing mass shooter drills. So that it's very personal. And I, I think having younger leaders that are connected to that makes it uh, even more likely that you'll see bold action on it. Student loan debt. When I came into the House, overwhelmingly, the majority of my colleagues on both sides uh, were millionaires before they were elected to Congress, did not have student loan debt themselves, their kids did not have student loan debt. Well, you have dozens of colleagues now of mine, especially on the Democratic side, 
who still have student loan debt. I, I still have about $80,000 that I'm paying off. And so when, when it's that personal to you, you understand what it means to other Americans. And it, it gives you a better shot, I think, of you know, prioritizing it as an issue. And then with climate, our kids are of a generation that is very pessimistic about whether this earth is even going to be sustainable you know, for uh, their own children to live on. And, and when I was running for president, I heard so many high schoolers tell me that they didn't think that they would start families themselves because they didn't want to give birth to a generation that would see the worst effects of climate. And that's it was so awful to hear. But when you have leaders in the House who are, you know, through their own kids connected to these issues, I, I think it gives you even more of an incentive and a reason to take them on. So that's that's something that is going to be, you know, very different with this new leadership and, and something that I'm really excited about. But Simon, it was Generation Z uh, and, and women who delivered this election for us. And, and that's why you uh, were writing off all of the forecasters and the polls, because you, you you sensed the energy that was out there, but you also saw the data of, you know, the participation rates among those groups. And I think the best thing we can do uh, is to give those, uh, you know, individuals agency uh, and make sure that they know that they're empowered because they showed up. And, and if they stay engaged on the issues they care about, making sure that we put in place a woman's right, you know, to make her own health care decisions, you know, into law the second that we're able to. If we give them that agency, they're going to stay engaged all the way to the 24 election when we're really, really going to need them. If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. So why does American democracy look the way it does? And how can we make it more responsive to the people it was formed to serve? Democracy Decoded is a podcast by the Campaign Legal Center. It examines our government and discusses innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. In season two, host Simone Leeper covers everything you need to know about voting in the United States. She speaks with experts from across the country and voters representing impacted communities about the deliberate barriers to voting that exist today. She asks, how can we make our voting system more inclusive? Because our democracy works best when every voter can participate. Listen to the latest season at democracydecoded.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You ran a caucus in the House that is geared towards younger members, right, and younger politics. And I do think that one of the things that you and I have discussed in the times that we've been together is how critical it is that Democrats figure out how to make younger Americans at the very center of their politics and not at the periphery, which it often is. I will give the Biden team a lot of credit this year. I think in the last six months, they really moved aggressively on things that really, really mattered to young Americans. And I think they created an ability, even despite his age, right? He was able to build a politics that spoke to the concerns of young people. And it was gun, the gun, first gun violence legislation we've passed in 30 years, gun safety legislation we passed in 30 years, historic climate legislation, the cannabis bill, the student loan efforts. This was a major effort by the administration to speak to young people in a way to engage them in the future of their country. That wasn't, it's not just about how it turned out in the elections, but it's 
It's about what really matters to a rising generation of people. We should be putting those concerns at the very center of our politics. And I, I do feel, Congressman, in a funny way that this election was a tipping point for that. I do feel that, you know, for you who fought so hard to get these issues into the mainstream, I think they're there now forever. I mean, I think we're going to be talking about this climate, this historic climate initiative, you know, bill that you helped pass, you know, for the next 20, 30 years. These things are now at the very center of our politics. And it's going to make those of us who care about engaging young people, I think we have far more tools to do it before. And of course, we have this very big new one, which is the issue of, of abortion. Which is very, very important for people of childbearing age, younger Americans, and is not something that even if you live in a state where things are protected, you know that you have fellow brothers and sisters across the country who may not be, and that we've got work to do here. I have a, a youth council that advises me. It's high schoolers, and actually, it's about sixteen to age twenty. Recently, I, I was with them, and in the middle of our meeting, all of their be real alerts went off. And, you know, that that's a new app, social media app, where when you get your alert and it changes every day, you have to be real. So you have to, within like a minute and a half, take a picture uh, of where you are. And it uses both, both cameras, the one that faces you and the one that faces outward. And then you show your friends what you're doing. And I think to that generation, that's exactly what they want from their leaders is for us to be real. And so it's no, it's no mistake that that's one of the most popular apps right now among young people. And so I, I think that's, as we lead and as we go forward and as we engage that generation, I think we have to be real with them. Uh, we have to let our guard down a little bit. We don't have to be so scripted and, and manufactured. And, and I think that uh, really resonates with them. And so to my colleagues, I tell them, you know, be real, be accessible. And be bold, because all of these solutions, gun violence, climate, women's uh, reproductive rights, they're going to require uh, boldness, you know, to, to solve what is ailing us uh, in all of those realms. And so that's kind of how I'm approaching this is, uh, you know, yeah, be real, be accessible, be bold, and we can be better uh, for this generation. That was terrific. I, I have a 17-year-old, a 20-year-old, and 22-year-old, and you know, their BS detectors are way beyond anything that we knew when we were younger. And uh, they're aware of manipulation. They're much, more self, they're much more aware of the games that go on in this media environment. And so they have, it's a, I know I can't put anything past my 17-year-old daughter. She's got the biggest BS detector of anyone I've ever met, I think. So changing gears just a little bit in the spirit of David, talk about Ukraine and how you see the Congress. I mean, the Republicans have expressed some doubt about continuing the blank check, as was the phrase Kevin McCarthy used. I mean, what's your sense? We're in the middle of winter here. Thankfully, gas prices are coming down here and around the world, alleviating some of the pressure on Europe, some of the energy surges that we saw. What's your sense about how things are going, how Congress is going to play this? Are you proud of Joe Biden's leadership in mobilizing this uh, coalition to take on Putin. This certainly seems to be one of the most important things that our government has to do over the next couple of years. What are your thoughts about how it's going? Ukraine has Russia on its heels and within its future will be a day where they will push out all of Russia's forces uh, that threaten their territorial integrity 
uh, their way of life uh, and innocent, you know, human life that's been lost and could be lost in this campaign. And the only threat to the progress that Ukraine is making is a Republican majority in the House of Representatives. And, and so I went over a couple of weeks ago to Kiev uh, to see President Zelensky. And look, he is focused. He's determined. The people uh, in that country uh, have sacrificed. Uh, they're willing to fight. They're willing to weather a, a cold, cold winter without heat uh, and water uh, and electricity. But they need us to be with them. And they need us to recognize, uh, as President Biden has, and as the Congress so far has, that their fight for freedom uh, is our fight for freedom. And, and if their line falls, then that fight will come to us at, at our front door. And so President Biden has stitched together you know, the most powerful international alliance since World War II uh, to push back against Russia's aggression. It not only has put Russia on its heels, when you look at uh, China and Taiwan, there's no question that President Xi is looking at what we've done in Ukraine with pause uh, as to whether he wants to move on Taiwan. And so not, not only would we allow Putin to overtake Ukraine and, and Zelensky you know, would probably be deposed as a leader if we backed out, but it would certainly embolden Xi uh, to move on Taiwan. And then you would see you know, two fronts where freedom would be overtaken by violent, ruthless dictators. So uh, everything's on the line. If Kevin McCarthy is responsible and, and cares about defending freedom, then he will put up Ukraine aid and rely on Democratic votes to get it across the goal line. But if he is worried about what the extremes in his caucus think, then Ukraine aid will be at risk. As you know, Simon, he does not have 218 votes in his conference to pass a Ukraine funding package. And so he will need Democratic votes and we will give him those votes. We will not play politics. This is about something bigger than politics. But what we fear is that he'll play politics uh, and he'll worry about his own speakership collapsing if he were to rely on Democratic votes. And that's where their aid comes in jeopardy. And I'll just say nothing has been more invigorating and inspiring over the last 10 months than watching nearly 10,000 miles away Ukrainians defend their own freedom. And as we see democracy on life support here, it's just a reminder of why we all fight for this crazy idea, this crazy experiment of you know, self-governance and, and majority rule. So it's inspiring to me. I think it's inspiring to my colleagues. I know it's inspiring to David, who talks about it a lot. And, and we have to keep them in the fight. It's a fight they can win. My grandfather, Louis Rosenberg, came from Ukraine. I uh, was a Ukrainian Jew. And I will tell you, there are days when, I mean, just when you were talking about Zelensky, that given the history of Jews in Ukraine, the notion that the world's most arguably powerful defender of democracy came from a similar background as my, my own family is almost hard to believe, right? Because Jews were not traditionally that well treated uh, in Ukraine, particularly in old, older times. And for his family to have stayed, and stayed with it through all that, the stuff that came is just, it's an incredible story. I mean, he really truly is one of the most remarkable leaders of, of, of modern times. And history calls, and sometimes people answer the call, sometimes they fail to, right? And he certainly answered history's call in a way that is inspiring all of us every day. I mean, it's really just a remarkable 
story. I hope to get over there at some point and and lend a hand in any way that I can. I'm very proud of what they're doing. And I and I do think that your point about and and I, I think we just have a few minutes left and I'd like to use this to pivot back to something you said earlier, which is do you think McCarthy, if he survives and he gets his he becomes the speaker, do you think there's any chance that on any issue he would ever allow a vote to happen where he needed democratic votes to get something over over the line i mean does he survive that if he if he uses that as a tactic i, I don't think he survive he survives it and, and so it's a matter of does kevin mccarthy want to do what's right and put the country and freedom everywhere over his own job or is he going to be singularly focused on keeping his own job and willing to see the consequences of that, which would be government shutdowns, economic collapse because we don't extend the debt ceiling, letting Ukraine fail because we don't fund their efforts. So he's, you know, he's never been tested like this before. He's a nakedly ambitious political operator, um, but he's never been tested you know, as a leader. He's, he's always been able to just take pot shots from the gallery you know, as a minority leader, but he's never had to actually lead. And so this will be a test. And, you know, I'm rooting for him to pass this test for the sake of, you know, what's at stake. But I don't have high expectations just seeing, you know, as I said, the corrupt bargain he's already struck to become speaker. And, and so it'll be a test for him. And it's a test that we need him to pass. I think it was really uh, smart of the president to bring him over this week to the White House. I think he should do that frequently. I think it's important for Kevin McCarthy to be reminded to be pulled out of the bubble that he lives in, that they all live in every day, and be pulled back out into the big world, and to be reminded of the stakes of of the challenges that are ahead of us, the stakes of our politics right now. I think the president was wise to do that. I hope he does it frequently because I think, as you know, Congressman, very well, the power and intensity of the bubble that they're all in there every day is is hard for many Americans to really understand. And it is critical that we try to give them a chance to succeed, to your point. I mean, we're all patriots. We're all Americans. We want the right thing. And I think is to give and to have our fingers crossed that Kevin McCarthy shows the political dexterity, the courage, the leadership ability to do the right thing when he needs to. It's not going to be often, but we're going to need him to do it a few times. That's, and, that's right, Simon. He, he gave him a seat yeah. at the big kids' table, or he at the adults' table. Yeah, and and he's gonna and he's earned it. He's going to be the in theory. He's going to be the speaker, and you know, let's hope that history is calling him and that he answers in a way that is right. But is also he's dealing with a very very difficult situation underneath, and and I do think that piercing this bubble and getting the Republicans out of this notion that what politics is about is getting first in line to get on Fox News every day as opposed to actually governing, right, which is something that they haven't really had to do a lot of in recent years, is, is really important. And I think the president set it off on a, on a smart foot, which is that he's not going to let these guys off the hook. I mean, they're now going to be leading the most important deliberative body in the history of the world. And, you know, they have an obligation to get out of there, to rise above and to not keep going down. And, and I think we should continue to expect that out of them and not to, not to let them off the hook. Congressman, thank you so much. I'm sorry David wasn't here. Hopefully it was, it's hard to fill in for David Rothkopf. I will tell you that. It's a daunting. No, Simon, I'll uh, I'll just say you gave me a lot of hope, uh, and you reaffirmed what my instinct was leading up to 
the election because I, I never once thought the cycle uh, that we were going to get wiped out. I felt like we had a lot to be proud of on what we delivered. And I looked at the contrast of the chaos that they had on their side. And, and I just thought, how would the voters go for that? Just because history says that they're supposed to, this is about the future. So why would we be looking back at, at history knowing so much is on the line in the future? And, and you didn't fall for it either. And optimism begets optimism. And, and we should learn that lesson as we go into 24. And no more bedwetting a month before the election, because that's when it's all on the line. And we need people fully engaged. Well, and I, I just want to say thank you for helping promote my stuff. And I believed because it was the data was showing me that. And I didn't believe in the red wave. And there's a lot of lessons in here that are very important. But the thing you hit on is the most important, is that the center left is going to prevail, in my view, in this global fight between democracy and autocracy, only if we get more intentional about creating positive sentiment and optimism in our politics. Because what a lot of what MAGA and Greater MAGA do is to put positive, to negative sentiment into our discourse. They want us to think less of ourselves, less of our country, less of our leaders, less of the American project, less of each other, less of all the things that we care about. And we have a role to play as information warriors. And that was what I was doing consciously every day for the last several months of the election was not spinning and not, you know, but I was, I was, I had conviction in what I was saying was right. And so I fought in a different kind of way. And we need to learn how to fight harder and smarter here, right? Because they're noisier than we are. We don't have to replicate what they've done. We're not going to be them. We have to, but we have to do it in our way. And one of the things I just want to say hats off to you, and one of the things I was excited to hear, is that to me, you're one of the most powerful congressional communicators that we have. You show up in my feed. You're just around in what I do. I can feel you every day through your work, through stuff getting retweeted, through your television appearances. You're loud in the way that I think we all need to be, and I don't mean loud in a boorish way, loud in an effective, strategic way. You're really loud. And I think that for me, you're one of the great communication exemplars in the Democratic Party. We need, if we have 30, 40 Eric Swalwells in the next you know, few years, we're gonna, the country's going to be okay. And so I want to say thank you. As a, I'm just a fanboy for, you know, for your passion, for your intelligence, your fight, your grit. You know, you're in there every day, Congressman, mixing it up. And it's what it takes if we're going to prevail here. And I'm just, you know, as a patriotic American, I just want to say thanks to you and all that. Thank you, you pal. And, and we're all authors in, in what this next chapter is. And so uh, let's get out there and make sure, you know, we have the right ending. Well, listen, everybody, that's the part of the show. For those of you who are just uh, guests with us, there's now a next part of the show, which is for the paid uh, subscribers of of Deep State Radio. And so we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with you in just a moment. <laughs> 